You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello. Happy Wednesday. Best day for growth is hump day, right? Um, today's interview is another fun one, and it's with Jordan Hill, who is the VP of Finance and Operations at Hashtag Paid, another Toronto-based uh, startup. Hashtag Paid is a company that helps social media influencers get paid by matching them up with companies who want to advertise via influencers um, who dominate different niches. And I think this is a continued trend that I'm seeing where we're seeing a polarization in the marketing world with um, bigger guys continuing to dominate a globe on a global basis but we're also seeing a large number of leaders and influencers in these small pockets and they're gathering really loyal followings in that way like that's how for me I get influenced to buy uh, products themselves and so we explored uh, the company itself with Jordan um, and also his career path. And so before hashtag page, Jordan was a fellow big four auditor like myself, but like many, he knew that the auditing path wasn't path wasn't for him. And in fact, his partner told him that it wasn't for him either. And so after which he went into being a career development coach. He talks about his journey as being a solo coach and then how he teamed up with a partner and they developed a product to start licensing and selling it to organizations. And so we go through all the trial and tribulations of entrepreneurship in these varying stages and also dig into what he actually does at Hashtag Paid and also why he actually wouldn't be doing what he is right now if he had tried to jump straight from accounting instead of taking this windy road through coaching. And also, um, as always, you know, I would appreciate any support uh, you guys can give to the podcast as listeners by leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. Um, it really helps the podcast reach a wider audience. And also, it would really also help if you would also leave a review on iTunes as well. I read all the reviews, and after I read them, I'll definitely try to give you a shout-out in this morning intro in the next episode. And so now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Jordan Hill. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Accounted For. Uh, today on the podcast, we have Jordan Hill. Jordan, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Jordan is the VP of Finance and Operations at Hashtag Paid. And so to start off with, Jordan, can you... Um, tell the audience what hashtag paid is what do you guys do absolutely so hashtag paid is a uh, creator marketing platform what that is is really working with socially influential people on various social channels and connecting with the brands to run campaigns really the problem I'm trying to solve is that how does uh, a new other brand get in front of the eyeballs of a young consumer you know no one's really listening to radio you've got ad blockers on your tv no one's really listening to newspaper and obviously social media has been that main medium and connecting with these influential people uh, to create campaigns that we find are relevant and authentic with their followers okay and so then are you on all kinds of social media or like are you focusing on a certain kind of social media a certain kind of influencer so we're on predominantly facebook and instagram and 
two degree Snapchat Twitter, but we found that majority in the way that um, visual content like pictures captivates audiences. Many people are on Instagram, and that seems to be about eighty percent of where most of our business comes from. Gotcha, gotcha. And how many uh, users do you have um, right now, the clients? Yeah, so in terms of on the influencer side, we've got 18,000 influencers. And what is an influencer is uh, the litmus test we have is 5,000 followers on a specific social media channel. So let's say 5,000 followers on Instagram and a minimum 1% engagement rate. We set those as tests because what we found was if an individual who buys their followers, they're going to have low engagement. And and so that's been that sort of first step. And then from there, there's qualitative aspects too. Okay. And uh, so we're, you know, glo- yeah, with North America, globally, we're, we're increasing at our appetite rate, which is awesome in terms of the influencers. Um, in terms on the, the brand side, it, it depends. There's a lot of Fortune 500 brands that we work with, Coca-Cola, Toyota, Audi. Uh, the list goes on, and, and we hope to keep that number growing as well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And... In terms of, um, so then 5,000 users, so are you saying that if I got 5,000 users on my Instagram account, I can start making money? We can get you connected, that's for sure. Oh, wow. Can't wait to see that happen. <laughs> I, I put all my lifting videos on Instagram and I only have, I think, 300 something followers. Oh, so it's, uh, you're a long way away, but we yeah. can get you there. One day. Don't worry. One day. You can still sign up on our website and we actually give you tips and tricks of how to grow your followers. All right. Yeah. Okay. I have plenty of friends who are food bloggers, so I think they might actually Absolutely. benefit from this. Uh, a big segment we get is foodies uh, fashion and beauty mm. lifestyle so travel uh, outdoors and all that so there's lots of brands that are looking to connect with individuals uh, this is influencer marketing is a very interesting time because the a lot of high quality influencers are coming out and, and that's sort of the next evolution of social media because before it was just your friends and family and now we have these high quality content creators and, and they're really rising to the top and that's how they're gaining these followers. And so for me, you know, my favorite follower is at Braden, B-R-A-D-E-N. Uh, you should check out his Instagram. He's uh, in Western Canada and does a lot of traveling outdoor shots. And he influences me because really I see all these amazing traveling shots and I just can't wait to check out. I went to BC actually because of him. So he's been partnering up with you know, our Canadian Tire Woods campaign and a couple other ones. So that, that's how we really try to channel that, uh, that I'd call brand symmetry or brand synergy. Okay, so yeah. you, you do matchups for that. Yeah, so our right. platform has obviously everyone has an AI algorithm these days, but that's specifically <laughs> uh, what it is to really connect on various qualitative and quantitative attributes. So then a brand would say, this is our objectives of the campaign. Um, we want to appeal to this type of demographic. And then we plug that into our platform and then they'll pop out of those 18,000 influencers, what are the most highly relevant influencers? And depending on the size of the campaign, we'll pick X degree amount of influencers posting a certain amount of times and that becomes a campaign. For, okay, yeah. gotcha. And so, you know, you're the VP of Finance and Operations here. And I think if I saw the earlier parts of your career, I, it might have been very obvious just because you were an accountant and Laurier, and after that you went to PwC, fellow big four accountant, mm-hmm. and if there's a gap there, but if that gap was filled by what you're doing now, I might have considered, oh, that's very, it seems very traditional. Yeah. But um, the gap is that gap is where I think the weirdness happens, where you went up to be a career development coach, yeah, um, and also started like being part of like a leadership academy, and so yeah, can you kind of take me back to all this where um, you go into accounting. It seems like it's all set. You go to PwC. Mm-hmm. Where's the inflection point? What's going on? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. So I did, I did three four-month terms at, at PwC. Uh, so then I graduated, and you know, like any young graduate, you're ready to take on the world. And I'm big four. I, you know, PwC, this is great. Let's, I want to be a partner. Right. So you did all three co-op terms as yeah. well at PwC. And I mean, when you do four months, you're not really like they say that uh, at the six-month mark is when. Uh, the honeymoon period's over, and engagement will dip materially uh, if an individual's not engaged. And so that's where that four months, you get a teaser, then you go back to school, and you're like, okay, school sucks, go back to work, you know, and, and that making money part's good. And then what I found was specifically, too, after, you know, you, you the dust settles after the UFI, and you're right back to work, this is what you're going to do for the foreseeable future. I was like, well, at first I was auditing um, mutual fund and hedge funds, and I was like, Man, this sucks. <laughs> There's just no enjoyment out of it. Very repetitive. And so then I thought, okay, well, let's try something different. So uh, within that group, there's the Emerging Company Services, which is audit, uh, for auditing uh, Toronto-based startups. And obviously, startups being interesting, I thought, okay, that's the next logical step. And I worked with great people there, you know, no matter what team I did, but really the nature of the work auditing was not something that appealed to me. And I somewhat struggled too in that work. I think that when your heart's not there, your head's not there. And uh, that was probably the first time in my career where I was working really hard but not getting the results. I wasn't performing well. And so I had a bit of a career crisis, a quarter life crisis, you could say. Um, kind of taking back, when you say it wasn't going well, so what, what's the indicator? How do you know that you're not doing well in audit? Well, you know, again, like my manager saying that, like the, the work that I'm doing is not oh. up to performance. Uh, on my performance reviews, I wasn't meeting expectations. And if you can think of an A-type individual like anyone who goes to a big four firm, you're used to performing well and meeting expectations. And the odd part was I could see it if I was half, you know, not putting in full effort, but I was. I was working really hard. And so, you know, when you see the process is there, but the results aren't there, it makes it even more frustrating. So you try even harder and then it doesn't work out and so then I thought am I dumb like it was sort of this weird thing because at that age you're, you're not really that aware of, of who you are and, and, and what you can expect and so then all you have is this sort of most recent feedback in your career because your career is so young you know okay well like you know am, am I some sort of failure and, you know you sort of start panicking to a degree and it, it kind of boils up to especially in a big four professional services firm just because you're with a lot of fellow A-type individuals, a lot of high performers, and the expectations of the role are so high. And so uh, with that, it just brought on a lot of just, you know, is this for me type of aspects. And so uh, I was sort of struggling to grab onto something that I felt I was good at and that I would enjoy. And so that sort of led me to the career detour that you uh, foreshadowed there, which was uh, a career development coach. And so essentially, I was, I, I got really into um, professional development books. Like, you know, first book I read was uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And from there, I just, I, I, there's so much out there. And so I just got more and more reading other various books and anything from like the four hour work week from Tim Ferriss to even, um, there's a litany of books. I'm just, um, anyways, the bottom line is I, I kept reading more and more and then um, someone sort of made a comment like, oh, like you should be an executive coach. And I was like, well, what's that? And then shortly after that, I met an executive coach and then I actually got coached by them because I was super interested in, in what they were doing. 
who's actually my friend's mom. And then so from there, I, I had this obsession with like, oh, this is what I'm meant to do. I'm not meant to be an otter, not numbers people. This is what I'm supposed to do. And so then I was so focused on how do I become a coach? And by then I had wrapped up. So I was close to becoming certified, like get my designation. I had the idea. I said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to be a coach. And I'm gonna, I had this vision of, of, at that point too, you know, helping people like me who uh, try and succeed in what they do, you know, and, and find uh, work that aligns with their strengths, values, and passions. Huh. And so when you, so you were getting ex- executive coaching while you were at PwC. Yeah. And what kind of uh, results did you see? The, you know, there's, there's the adage where um, so, someone asks like, oh, what, why did you become a life coach? And so they say, oh, well, my life coach, I have my own life coach. And I, from getting all the life coaching, I decided to be a life coach. Yeah, uh, honestly, uh, it is so, like life coaches are, are very interesting individuals. Uh, there are some very great ones. Uh, there's a lot that are, are questionable. And I've met a lot of different types of coaches through my coaching journey. And, and in this one, I, I liked with executive coaching that there's still a professional lens to it where you're helping professionals, executives. But maybe the entitled millennial part is, you know, if you're trying to be executive coach and you haven't had much work experience, what executive wants to coach you? But I was just so determined to, I think, just go deeper in the coaching. So, you know, I said, well, then I'll help uh, young professionals like myself. And... It was this, you know, as you sort of talk more with your friends, read more, you're starting to formulate sort of maybe theories or programs or hypotheses. And I remember just like going home at night and just developing this program. And and, uh, it was called um, In Charge. And so it was this whole thing, like my coaching company is going to be called In Charge Consulting. And effectively it was like, if you can build the, the right habits, then you can really you know, optically perform, right? But in order to perform well, the one before that is you have to be aware of what you're good at. So if you can first establish what you're good at, that state of flow, as they call it, so a mixture between, you know, again, like what's important to you and what you're good at, then it's a matter of, okay, now you found that, now it's how do you execute it, and it's building those specific habits, whether it's like incorporating like meditation and productivity breaks and, and timing the, like timing with your energy, and so I had it all sort of map, mapped out. Uh, it's so clear, at least to me. And then when, when you go to the market, <laughs> you know, I, I remember just going to my, so the first, I first called it professional lifestyle consulting because again, I was still that we were in the coach aspect, especially because I didn't have any formal coach training. But I remember I was at a, uh, an entrepreneur event and I still remember that, that event and, and I had the business cards made and I remember so embarrassed and I was trying to like proud like the first person I went to like so what do you do I'm a professional lifestyle consultant and they're like what and then like I try to explain it face getting red give the card and you know I, I try again I go to another person I just and so it's these two guys I remember and they're older and they just laughed in my face and they're like what the hell is that and uh, I just remember just trying to persevere and I remember I actually met another guy who's older and he actually like, you know, once he got past the initial part, actually had a ring to it. So that was sort of like, you know, if I was clinging on to some positivity, that's certainly what it was. But I just remember like, I mean, again, if I saw someone say that to me, I'm sure I'd have the same reaction, but it was sort of that like first sort of like, wow, like maybe it's making sense in my head, but not making sense to other people. Yeah. 
so that's when um, I, as I, then I started reading more into coaching and I, and, um, I actually applied to, to Adler. So, so in June 2015 is when I graduated. So I got my designation probably a month earlier. And from there, uh, I did the coaching training for three months there. And I realized, okay, so maybe it's not about like optimizing an individual's performance, but let's sort of simplify it a bit more and talk about, you know, there's a lot of young people who have confusion in their career, you know, the whole millennial at work issue. So it's like, I think that's where I can live. That's where, where we should be. And so that's where it evolved into a career development coach. And so then I created Metcalf Hill Coaching and Development. The name Metcalf Hill was because um, my late grandfather, Bill Metcalf, was a big inspiration for me because he's the one that actually uh, gave me my first book, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I remember I um, used to have long conversations with him about various uh, professional development books. And so uh, the summer that I had uh, launched Metcalf Hill, previously that he actually passed away. So I was sort of paying a tribute to him. And so I was, had a classy ring to it. So I used that. And so from there, I was coaching individuals. I obviously started off a lot for free because not many people want to pay someone who is starting off. And uh, it was really interesting because um, as you coach more and more people, I found that there was just this recurring theme. A lot of people were complaining or couldn't really articulate their issues because they lacked that awareness. They really lacked well, what is important to them, uh, what they enjoy doing. It's really simple questions or why do you work? And the more you think about it, there's been no mechanism set in place in school to support that. And unless I think you have very supportive parents who have long conversation with you, you won't get that anywhere. And so you have a situation where you have these people going to school, you know, right, what's right in front of you, the next grade or, or, or that next test. And you're, you know, as any high performer, it's, you know, try and get an A plus or try to get an A. Okay, so now you're in high school. Okay, how do you go to that university, say Queens or Western? Okay, you know, try and get a 90 average. And so you're so focused, right, doing that, doing that, doing that. And you're like, okay, I want to be in Queens engineering or, or you know, uh, Ivy in business, but like why? And so that's what a lot of people, they don't ask themselves throughout it, but it's sort of like, either pressure themselves, their parents, or their friends. They want to be a management consultant, a banker, an engineer, a doctor, and they just don't become satisfied because they don't have that, they never had a situation where you had that check of, okay, does this fit what I want to do, my personality type, my needs? And so I think what was interesting just talking to a lot of fellow young professionals was that recurring theme. And so I had still done some coaching and I got some luck with workshops. I, my goal was to try and the ideal stage was that I knew like if I could coach people, like I could really increase the engagement of a, a, a workforce of a company. And so the goal is to like sort of be this in-house coach on retainer that they go in and I can sort of do coaching programs with them. But companies aren't ready to, like at least when I was doing it, they weren't ready for coaching. Like it's, it's you know, it's like in the 1980s, no executive got coached, but now it's like every executive has a coach and it felt like it was only time before everyone has access to a coaching resource and just seeing the trend of coaching. And so I, I, I tried to sell the coaching program, it wasn't work, but you know, then it'd be okay, I'll do a workshop. So I had some luck there and I was coaching and I just, it lacked that impact. You know, I was sitting one-on-one -on -one in a conversation, but I was like, I want to do something bigger and broader. And so about a year into it, I met a fellow coach named Joel, 
And he was doing something very interesting where he was taking uh, also young individuals and putting through um, what he called at that time the Discover program. And so he founded the Global Leadership Academy. And he had three phases to it. So there's, I think Discover, um, Explore, and, oh, Discover, Aware, and Explore. And the net of it was that that first one, Discover, was all about building self-awareness. And it was very eerily similar curriculum to my coaching. And so I was like, hey, you're doing something cool attacking the same problem. I'm doing something cool. And like we both are struggling with, I think, the momentum we want to do. Why don't we just put the best of our programs together and make this thing online? Because like anything, software is scalable. And we thought that this is a repetitive thing that if we could just make this a software, we could really help a lot of people and maybe sell us to companies or universities. And so I uh, then bought in as a co-founder to uh, the Global Leadership Academy and we focused on Discover and we actually spent the next four months crafting the program and then we uh, tested it with individuals. So as we built it, we tested it out and we actually sold uh, our first program before it was even built to a client and I don't want to say who just because <laughs> just in case they're listening but yeah, yeah. I just remember the whole smoke and mirrors thing you know show them wireframes and be like yeah like or like show them like uh, what we do is uh, you record a screenshot and like have it move around and stuff but the data discovery was again it was six different modules uh, that provided a comprehensive report on the uh, of an individual about their career and so we had just huge aspirations. We're like, this is gonna make us millions. We're gonna sell it to every company. We've solved the millennial issue. And we actually like had uh, a lot of feedback sessions with millennials. Like, uh, you know, um, I happened to be part of a group called Millennial, Cru millennial Crusaders. And it was just a monthly meetup with 50 to 60 like-minded young professionals. And so we had tested with them and it was like great feedback. So if you think about it, like you're getting a lot of great feedback from the users, you're able to sell your first one before you even made it. You're thinking, okay, this is something. This yeah, is you great. have your product market fit and you're like, okay, exactly, we can just right? scale it I now. Mean, like, I mean, I read, I remember um, like Lean Startup. So I knew it was all about like, you know, develop, um, get feedback before you develop. And so I thought I was doing everything right. And so then we get it built, we do it with that one customer and it happened to be just like a, a one-off uh, thing for their new starts as part of onboarding and so then you know that that was like and then so we really spent just trying to like meet with HR people and, and sell it but it, it is a it's hard to sell the HR they are and they're used to getting sold a lot and I just remember just like shaking my head having these great conversations but at least nothing what really also annoys me is selling to Canadians because they're so polite and they'll lead you on and then they'll just ghost on you so I remember we were, um, and I'm going to call them out as RBC. Uh, we had a string of great meetings and I'm like, holy crap, we're selling to RBC. Like this is like, you know, this is gonna be it. This is the big one. And then it just like, it, as it goes up the ladder, it just got cut because RBC has this program where like their procurement says, if there's something available internally, then you, it, you have to make a huge case why to buy it. And so RBC apparently had this crappy program internally that they did and so they said we unless we really work hard and sell this like the our sort of sponsor within RBC that we can't and so um, 
you know, it was just so it was that. So basically, you start up this high, right? As I mentioned, like you're thinking, like I'm, and again, my inner account, I'm doing the modeling and just being like, oh my god, like you know, like we can make a hundred k in like four or five months here, like this is unreal. And like so, I'm picturing like the next apartment I'm gonna get, and like you know, just like because at that point, like I just like I was living at home and I just moved out to a, a three bedroom apartment with two other guys, they're my friends, but like I was like, okay, like this is. You're starting to see dollar signs and you're doing your vision boarding. And yeah, I used to get really humbled because, you know, I, I the product market fit is, is very difficult with this product because you're solving a very complex, non-tangible problem, which is that, okay, so if employees are self-aware, so what? And like, you can say like, okay, it increases employee engagement. And so it's a lot of referring. And so, especially if you're, you're selling in a business where people's jobs are in line, if they make a wrong decision, then they're very risk averse. And so unless you paint a clear picture, it's difficult. Like you'd have some forward thinking people will say, you know what, yeah, I know millennials are a problem, but you know, and the second part is like, so we had the user testing, but were our users the actual individuals as millennials or were they actually the HR decision makers? Because another problem we had was that Discover takes about uh, six hours, oh, not six hours, four and a half hours to do for these six modules. And so it's a long, comprehensive program and individuals like it, but do you want your employees on top of the cost of paying for spending four and a half hours doing this? And the second part is that, what is the next step there? Is it, you know, we, we want to be very scalable, right? And so uh, a lot of people are like, oh, can you do a workshop? Or if you do, if you sell these licenses, can you do a work workshop after? Where we're like, you know, the ultimate thing would be, you know, a company buying it for their employees and onboarding, and then it's just a recurring, you know, think, hey, you know, let's say uh, company X hires 100 people a year, it's like they're buying 100 licenses so you can get that recurring revenue model. But it just, it was, it was a round hole square peg. And so I, I just remember we were just sort of like really trying to make it work and it was, it was challenging based on what we thought would be good. And so I think that as the entrepreneur, you know, there's that like akin to that honeymoon period. So you know, I it was like, okay, I became a coach and then I came sort of like a tech startup entrepreneur to a degree. Yeah, so how, how does that uh, timeline work? So you were, you, you quit PwC and- Yeah, so June go, 2015, quit P PwC. Yeah, and then and you go into, is that when is that when you started to just start, make your business cards and go to all these so entrepreneurial conferences? So actually, I started go. so I'd say probably in, in the couple of months leading up, I would go to these. Okay, so you kind of beta tested it a beta little bit. Beta tested it, yeah, but yeah. I was so, I had such high conviction that, you know, I was like, okay, in charge may not, professional lifestyle consulting may not be what it is, but I know that, I know if I go to Adler coaching school, do that program, I'll get what I need to then really do well. And, you know, I think I get a lot of people who like ask me, like, especially as it was in the lead up to, um, like leaving or as I left, they're like, oh, like what's it like to be an entrepreneur? Or like what's it like to like actually quit PwC? And it's weird, it's just like at that moment, I was like, again, it was like, I just felt that was the right thing. I thought it'd be insane just to stay because I wasn't happy and I, I was certainly not, you know, doing what I thought was aligning with my values. And so that's what made that very decision very easy. It wasn't really, it's like I had to do it. It wasn't like a, you know, so. Yeah, I think I, I tell people this too. When when I every time I would quit a job, which I've done multiple times now, it's th there's a sense of enlightenment, mm -hmm. kind of also a, like an unburdening mm -hmm. feeling where at the end of it, 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 like you, 
you stress leading up to the moment, and then it just happens, and it just and it just feels like yeah, yeah. It, it was the thing to do. It's yeah. It, there was no holy crap. Like for me, it was like I left on a Friday. Actually, like it's sort of like the stars line because my birthday was June twentieth, and that was on a Saturday, and the Friday was June nineteenth. So it's sort of like end of week, day before my birthday, and the twenty fifth birthday too. So it's sort of this like. That sort of reinforced that this like is a new start for your quarter exactly, life, right? Yeah, and so um, it just felt all right. Like it felt like that was the thing to do, and um, you know, so I I did that, and I remember too. Like it was like I was so excited to get started, and like so yeah, that Friday and that Monday, uh, I got up at six thirty and went to the gym, and then went right to work. And I remember seeing. My friend saw me and he's like, dude, like, are you an entrepreneur? Are you supposed to be like, sleeping in? Like, what? You just quit on Friday. And I'm like, man, I want to like get up and start developing this program. And so, like, that was like a great summer because, like, I still had money in the bank and my program didn't start in September. So, I just had tons of books that I was trying to read and like really learn as much as possible and do like some sort of uh, try and validate my coaching program, my coaching skills too. And so, yeah, it was just like I, I read probably like forty books that summer. It was just so I was just nice. like it was like nine to five, just read books or like just try to develop your website and just like yeah. Yeah. And so okay, you're you're reading tons of books, you're learning, you're getting the knowledge and then you do your coaching thing in September and mm-hmm. then after about three months now you got the coaching certificate and that's when you go off on your own and start getting your first clients. Were they like mainly friends and family that yeah, yeah. came so, on as first clients? The first uh, paid client was actually, yeah, it was, it was a friend. Um, okay, so after you said how you started off being unpaid, and then you eventually got a friend to start paying you. Yeah. Nice. So she was trying to switch her jobs, and we were actually, like, I think we were at a party one time, and, and I was just talking to her about it, and she's like, oh, my God, like, let's do it. Like, well, let's sign up for four sessions. And I'm like, yes, this is sweet. <laughs> and so uh, I can't remember what he charged, but, you know, um, it's like for coaching like you have to do it like to make it uh, sustainable like an organization has to sponsor you because if you I remember I had like a mentor who was a coach who had done a lot of consulting stuff for Deloitte and other big companies and he said don't go the B2C market because you're just gonna try and like people don't want to pay what you get deserved and as a coach you have to pay a prime rate because you're not working 40 hours a week like you're billable chargeable hours you know, would probably be half that. And so that's the difficulty too, because as you're starting out, you're trying to like, what rate should you charge yourself? And I remember in hindsight, I was charging way too low. And I remember doing, um, for one organization, I did like a one hour session, I charged like $75. And I thought I was like, oh my God, like that's, but like in hindsight, like that is, is way too cheap. And, and I think also your price reflects the perceived quality. And so I, that could have been also a hindrance to um, a lot of possible opportunities. So luckily, while I so I, as I realized the cash flow was draining quick because the cash inflow from coaching wasn't sustaining any sort of uh, lifestyle, I was working part time, uh, basically working in between the CFO and the controller or senior accountant at a startup called Exogenic. Okay, so you and found a role to. Just, yeah, so it worked out perffectly because it was it was two days a week uh, and the CFO was very easy going and was like choose whatever days you want to come in but this is a general scope of work and so part of it was they're transitioning their accounting system accounting software so 
I was doing the rollover work. So it wasn't really deadline driven. And so that, that worked really out really well. And then also like he sort of started throwing stuff down at me cause he was liked what I was doing. So I was like, sure. And, and, and for me it was like, that was just strictly paying the bills. And I was like, I was like, I can't wait for this day to be done so I can go back and actually do my like developing my company and, and my, my work. And so, um, yeah, so I remember my sort of master plan at the time too, I forgot to mention was um, I, I started blogging and I wanted to make a website. So this whole idea where uh, as I blogged, I'd build followership, that followership would convert into you know, opportunities such as like creating a book and paying that or, or at least be lead generation. And I, I remember speaking to you in this, our first conversation, but like, you know, it starts off great and then it just, it plummets. I just remember it was like, I was building like, a really good followership so I'm like trying to forecast okay like where would my subscriber count be but then it just like all of a sudden after like two months it fell off a rock and just like I was struggling for readers and I, was, I thought my content was getting better and I'm getting so frustrated and, and um, that just led to the inconsistency with publishing my articles me being self-conscious and I actually eventually stopped doing it but I found it like a cathartic experience because you're like really just like it helps you to sort of process certain things and so um, I've always tried to think about picking it back up just throwing random stuff on LinkedIn like I think I think what is interesting about certain successful bloggers is that they don't try to uh, scope themselves too much with a plan that they really just try and write what's organically on their mind type of thing which which I think that if I ever got back into I'd do that I wouldn't want to like because I had originally scoped it a little too hard into like career advancement and career progression and and it was sometimes you just struggle for ideas and that gets frustrating. Yeah, it's, it's so like, I guess from my experience, yeah. I think now tomorrow I'll be hitting like month five of having been pumping out weekly products in yeah. a sense. So um, every Tuesday I send out an essay that's like around 2,000 words. And so yeah. I think for me the trouble has been actually how do I categorize what I'm writing because it's just kind of everywhere. Yeah. And so I, I think I got past the initial hurdle of the idea um, generation part where like right now so like my habit is every morning I write 300 words yeah, it doesn't matter what it is it out yeah, it's just yeah. 300 words you just pump it out something about a paragraph or two but now I have so I have a set of folders so I have like six different folders that systematize so folder number one's idea and then it goes to in progress and then it goes to first draft then grammar edits then publish ready yeah and then publish and my idea folder has I think right now about 60 documents are just ideas i always find the ideas are always the easy one and yeah then it becomes okay what does this mean how do i stretch it out into an article yeah. like oh well but over time like what i found is like i'll when you go through it like i'll use a keyword search in like evernote and i usually have like four different ideas mm -hmm. that have the same keyword and then just like clump it together and it just forms kind of an article yeah <laughs> and then over time i'm just constantly writing it and like t this morning i launched my um essay for the morning and this one was long it's like a three thousand word one yeah but i've been working on it for about the last three weeks and there's those weird gaps where i'll have an immediate inspiration and something hits and i just write a 1500 word article in like a day yeah, yeah. and i'm like this is published ready basic grammar edits it's, it's good to go and yeah. then because a big hit and then i pumped this one out today and i don't think anyone's really i think i don't know how many people have actually read it. i don't yeah. think that much like i thought mm -hmm. this would be a big hit but it hasn't been and yeah it's 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 weird i had that big launch bust like mm. launch boom and then it became a huge bust right yeah. after the first month afterwards and mm. now it's climbing back up but now it's just looking volatile 
Yeah, it, it, it becomes illogical, and then you yeah, can't yeah. get a, a feel for where it should be. Yeah, you know. so I'm just constantly trying to just pump it out and seeing a, mm-hmm. you know, the goals to last a year, so we'll see. I think I'm close to 25 essays now. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so we'll see. So then for you, so you, you did the blog, and it's not kind of working out, and then, you know, you, like you mentioned, like your mentor is saying, oh, you want to you know, have a sponsor, like doing one-on-one, it's not that scalable. And yeah, so, so then, that was where like hit the organizations. So yeah. That's where I was trying to knock on the doors of, of companies. And so again, like the, the coaching stuff, just, it wasn't there. They'd say that program set is interesting, super great, but we just don't coach our frontline employees. And it's funny because again, like having also like been on the other side now where uh, I'm setting budgets and stuff for our HR, I, I realized how I could have positioned it to make it easier because really a dollar is not a dollar in an organization. You know, it's, it's, um, if you can really fit it under a certain theme that it makes it easier. So what I'm trying to say is a lot of times I got the feedback was said, Oh, well, do you do stuff for our managers? And for me, I was so focused on like the young employees, I'm like, no, like this is for young employees so they can help like, you know, be better individuals with their managers. And, and really what they're saying was, we do a lot of training for managers because that's an easy budget to allocate to and i'm also seeing the other side so if i had just focused on first-time managers it would have been a different process because they would have budget and timing for it because you know if you're if a company's investing to hire someone to be a manager uh, there's two parts so one is that obviously they think that they're good and capable of their job and then they want to further invest in it but the second part is they're also managing other employees there's the multiplication effort so Obviously, they want to make sure that this manager is adequate, especially as a first-time manager. And so, it was funny that there was a thing where I'm like, "Oh man, like that would have been like." You always think of what if, like if if a 25-year-old Jordan walked in, like what would have sold it type of thing, and um, that would have been one that like aligned to it. So, it, it's interesting because again, like I, I was trying to sell this coaching thing. It, it was again, they'd always say very interesting, but dot dot dot. And then I was like, "Well, why don't you do a workshop?" And it's like one-off workshops you can't really pay rent with type of thing and 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 so i mean it it's funny because you i couldn't get business advice from many coaches because a lot of coaches themselves aren't good at business people and that's why they were coaching i guess <laughs> but there was a my one for mentor was and, and unfortunately wasn't as available as i wished because he was actually successful but i do remember that was the one specific piece of advice and so it really is hard to make a good living off coaching unless you have a good sort of business model mapped out or at least a good portfolio of uh, individuals. And uh, what's interesting is in coaching school, they never really taught the business side of coaching. And so he had a lot of people who are sort of free thinkers and sort of spirited individuals. But when it came to, okay, how's that going to sell? They never really taught that. And that's something that like would be very important because all these people graduated from it. And it was, it's a lot of them did struggle with sort of building, like a very few percentage of coaches actually can make a living off of it. It's almost like the whole real estate agents where a certain percentage uh, can actually do it full time. And so that's the same thing with coaching. Mm-hmm. And so then you go off on your own and you realize, okay, this ain't gonna work. And then you you meet Joel and you and you guys decide, okay, now we're gonna, you know, we, we've got it. We're gonna sell this program to business. Yeah. It's gonna be scalable. I, I had finally found the code because I was like, I knew there was a good idea. Like I had conviction around it. Yeah. It's just, maybe it's just not living in the right way. But now that business is different, right? Like you, you first did coaching because you wanted to help these people. You wanted yeah. to do this one-on-one thing. And now you're just making products and you're not talking to people much anymore and right? really like coaching them. 
Um, how did you relate with that? Like, how yeah, did you deal with that? It was interesting because I definitely liked presenting in front of people and, and, and speaking with people. And, and so the, the only way that I would get sort of satiated would be uh, selling to like in the sales conversations. I think the, the big driver for me was, you know, this is something that it, the scalability part was important as well as that I think it could impact many. And so that was sort of, that was driving me with that. But it was a certain degree of need was not maybe that one-on-one interaction because that's not really me, but one-to-many. And so I, I know that like, you know, through my reflection of it in hindsight, it, that sort of presenting to groups was a big uh, driver of what would be good for me. And so ironically, like coaching is a one-to-one. You can do one-to-many, that's more of a facilitator though. And so, you know, it was funny where I, I thought, it goes back to like sort of after that six month mark, it was, okay, this is starting to become a grind and the day-to-day I'm not really enjoying because it's really just going on LinkedIn or anything, trying to find anyone I know who knows someone in HR, a lot of ignored messages, a lot of called off meetings, a lot of unsuccessful meetings. And then you do have some success and like, then you just ride this roller coaster. You're like, oh my God, it's amazing. And I, and I do remember uh, when we sold to University of Toronto Rotman for their um, entire program and, and that was a huge win. And uh, and then the goal was sort of to go after a lot of other university programs. And <laughs> this was part of the Leadership Academy. Yeah, so this is nice. Discover. So we said, okay, so maybe companies aren't it. You know, we're like, we just sold to a university, like this could be it. And so then they sort of you turn back on the potential of like how many universities and colleges and the difficult sell to again universities is the money part because the career center does not have much budget. So we really cut the price of our license to, you know, try and make it work. And we, you know, we had somewhat success, but it, it, Basically at that point, again, that was sort of, again, because I, I was sort of an entrepreneur for two years. I was, I was towards the end of it and, you know, I was tired, burnt out, depleted. And I just remember sitting there, at, um, ironically, at Starbucks uh, with my uh, co-founder. And we basically had a reality check. We said, okay, like we have this much money coming in, like not even one of us could sustain that. So like how long do, would it really take for us to get it to a point where we can actually live off of it while not working full time. And it was going to be like at least three years. And I remember we finished that and I just walked away. I'm like, is this something I like, do I really want to do this? For like, another three I, years. Yeah, like yeah. if I, and I think that is almost a passion test right there because I think someone saying the passion would say yes because this is a problem I want to solve. And that was the first time I realized I had an interest in this but not a passion for it. And so... I just remember that that was around the holidays, I think, because I remember it was like, um, I was just like, let's just take the holiday break off and meet back in January. And I, it was just, I was, I was, I was like, I think I'm done with this. That's when I first started thinking. I remember I went to a, because uh, our whole thing was, okay, let's start attacking the university market. So I went to this um, university uh, career educator conference and I was, I went there, I just wasn't giving full effort. And I remember leaving being like, do I want to put myself out there again to that degree of what I went through trying to sell to HR? And a big part was just, I wasn't really loving what I was doing the other day. And, and, and so. Reminded you about it? Yeah, <laughs> honestly. Um, 
Audit was soul sucking. This was more of a draining. <laughs> um, and so yeah, that was when I, I, you know, I had to have a difficult conversation with my co-founder, and it, I just remember just meeting up and, and letting him know I, I can't do this anymore. That you're gonna, like it, w- it really it wasn't fair for him for me because I wasn't there. I wasn't giving a hundred percent, and I said that I would support in a support capacity, and I remember really like. Uh, it was a tough reaction. He was certainly upset with me, but I remember I was like, let's just ride this out. And then we, we finished the conversation. And then after that, I was in a bit of a limbo. I was still working, obviously paying the bills through uh, working part-time uh, at a startup. And then uh, he actually would like try to email me, meet up every once in a while to get advice on certain things, but it still felt not right to really hang out with him. It was just like this, it's almost like akin to a breakup with in a relationship where it's like the whole breakup but stay friends. It was just, I, I knew that it was bringing up just bad feelings. And so I remember after a couple of meetings, I had to say it again, like Joel, I actually don't want to be involved in this at all. And that was again, another difficult conversation because you know, it's okay. Like, what do you mean? Like, how are we going to, you know, how am I going to do this? Like, I thought you're going to help me. And then it goes back to, you know, obviously, like, is there an equity split? Like, how how do I get out of the business type of thing? And so just, again, more difficult conversations there. And, again, I'll spare the details. It eventually got resolved. But, uh, you know, I went from that to really nothing. And I was like, what the hell? Like, and I to add it, it's where I was a goddamn career coach, right? So, yeah, so- <laughs> I don't know what I, I just remember, like, uh, talking to my dad. And I'm like... I had my, I just like slumped, like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And he's like, but aren't you, don't you help people do this? Like, isn't this your whole thing? And that's what made me feel like, it was my mind boggling. Cause I'm like, yeah, like I should know. And so that's when I was like, okay, like let's use all that knowledge the past two years, all that experience and help myself find a job. And so I remember just I, trying to like go through my own coaching and like first of all coaching one-on-one is you can't coach yourself like you're not supposed to it's just it doesn't work but I was trying to like you know coach myself and and find that ideal career and I think that with my approach the fault was that I was trying to find the perfect career and over analyzing what I needed and and what I was looking for and so it, it led me to a series of just meetings with like at one point I was applying for HR at like, I think Johnson and Johnson. And it was that reality check. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? And so I met up with, um, again, a quasi informal mentor who was the, uh, his name is Bill McLean. And he was the head of people at, at PwC. And he, the reason we had connected because as I was leaving, he was, he was a coach. Um, and so it was just, we connected on him, me aspiring to be a coach and him having had his coaching degree. And you know, uh, that's where uh, he was just sort of help, trying to help me through it and trying to sort of de-complicate my thoughts. I think that really what it was, I was just like, I should have just gone traveling or just take my mind off it. I was just thinking about every day. And so I remember actually, so how I, hashtag paid came into the form, the, into the picture was uh, my, one of the investors I knew very well. And uh, I went, I was, we were meaning to grab lunch together because he's a really wealthy guy. So I'm like, okay, you know, rich people kind of know what they're doing. Let's was it just like a friend that you had on, on the side? Uh, a family friend, yeah. Oh, okay, nice. And so we were supposed to actually grab lunch back in December and then always, it got, kept getting pushed back, pushed back to eventually about uh, early April. And 
then finally we do and then he's like funny because i'm like I, I don't know what to do and he's sort of trying to simplify it he's like well what, what, what kind of stuff do you need I'm like well i i miss working with people because as an entrepreneur is either me or joel or like i'd be working alone and we, or working for people when i was coaching i'm like i want to be part of a team he's like okay that's one part and then i was like what else i'm like i really want a goddamn office i can go to every day because when you're an entrepreneur you're working at coffee shops like you can't afford any rent or you're working at home alone and I was like, I just, I always remember, I was like, I want to just be at an office every day. And he's like, what else? And I was like, I, th that's kind of it right now. I was like, that's what's screaming at me. And he's like, well, he's like, funny to say, he's like, I know you're a CA and like, you're doing like, you know, part-time accounting work, like, you know, hashtag pays looking for like a head of finance. And I'm like, ah, oh, do I do numbers? Cause you know, what I was doing part-time was, was somewhat brain numbing work kind of like the audit side of things. Like I was helping facilitate the audit, for example. It wasn't great work and I was like, this is no. So I was like, do I really want to go back into accounting? Like, didn't my whole realization, my quarter life crisis say like, get out of audit, get out of numbers. <laughs> and so I remember going to again, uh, Bill McLean being like, so I like, so what had happened was I, again, I got an interview with uh, Brian, the CEO. So like, okay, I'll, I'll go meet up with him. And it was, it was a cool, like, I mean, like a cool startup and, you know, it was an interesting concept of, of this, you know, creator marketing, influencer marketing. And, and Brian was a really cool CEO and, and I was like, that's cool, but still like head of finance, like, you know, and so I remember talking to Bill, we're having a beer and I'm like, you know, well, maybe I can do like HR at PVC or something. And he said, Jordan, he's like, you know, I've tried to be facilitatory too, but this one, I'm just going to tell you straight up, you should do this job. You're not an HR person. And I'll tell you bluntly, like, I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, a lot of what HR is, is that you're executing the strategy that the people set. And he's like, this job is for you. Just trust me. And I was like, all right. So I remember I was like, you know, not fully convicted. So I said, all right, signed away. And uh, it was interesting within the first month, really, that like when I joined, uh, it was it was ironically what I wanted when I thought of becoming CEA, CA <clears throat> was that just being a businessman, sort of making decisions and, and being a person of influence. There was no other numbers person uh, at the company. So immediately I was there asking me about stuff like that would help like make an impact. And so it was what I thought I wanted when they sort of sell you on audit. Um, <laughs> you can run the world with numbers. Uh, and so it was great. And I also was able, the, the CEO was really keen on what I was doing as a coach. He had said, I wouldn't have hired you if he had just come from like the big four. So it's sort of like, okay, there was a purpose and all the suffering type of thing. And also he appreciated that I wasn't, uh, I was a former entrepreneur. And I do think it, it certainly helps, especially with, because I realized that I enjoy supporting an entrepreneur, not being the entrepreneur. And so just being able to sort of empathize with them when, when sort of um, living that entrepreneur roller coaster. And so I felt that throughout the whole, that whole journey has helped me become a better sort of head of finance. Like you said, like if you looked at my job now or my first job, you would have thought, okay, traditional, but I did take the non-traditional route, but it helped me obviously, you know, especially with a startup, the interpersonal aspects, we're just a bunch of humans trying to do something. And it's amazing how often the human part interferes with the execution of a strategy. And so, really trying to design strategy that fits with humans. And so where I find that a lot of my coaching facilitation has actually helped. And to a fact, I've actually run workshops on Myers-Briggs here, which has been really helpful. So there has been some purpose there. And so it's been interesting how 
there has been an, well, it wasn't just all for nothing type of thing. Yeah, and so now if we get kind of get into you know what you actually do, then how would you how would you describe uh, your role? Like, is there is there a distinct split between this is what I do as VP of Finance and this is what I do as like VP of Ops, or how do you look at it? Well, it, it's interesting because I would have thought that when I first went in, and so I originally was the VP of Finance, but then I took on a more operational role too, and really there's um, so financials. Is, one part of it's always like the financial statement is always historical. It's what happened, right? And for a startup, that's not really that helpful because you're always changing things are happening quick. And so there's the, okay, what's going to happen? And that's where the operations side comes in, where you, again, using the forecast, uh, you have to predict what the future is, but the operational lens is that, does that reflect reality? And so having to work with all of the team leads and department heads to say, okay, like how can we, um, quantify or have that element of prediction of, of what that is and tying that into what would be then the forecast so then we can say okay like when are we going to run out of cash because that's really like inherently the, the, every startup problem is that when are we going to run out of cash what can we do about it and so that's where that op- operations part comes in with things like uh, key performance indicators and so that part has been it's been really enjoying that's become more of a new part of my role so at first i was the finance guy you know i helped them raise the series a so uh, we raised nine million back in may and then from there it's once you have money it's sort of how do you what do you do with how do you measure it and, and how do you maximize the performance of a company so i would say that in, in a long-winded answer it, it, it blends and that's the, that's what's supposed to happen oh, okay yeah and just on the on the raising of the fund side so this is just more of a a personal curiosity of mine. Mm, yeah. Um, I think like in our first conversation, we talked about how like, you know, I've, my background is I'm an investor and yeah. I like investing. And um, lately I've, um, I've been look, talking to a lot of venture folks because I wanted to um, get into like private investing. Yeah. And I think being an angel and angel investing, I think like it just became more apparent. Like mm-hmm. you want to go to hedge fund? Okay, well you should start a public stock portfolio. So I run my own public stock portfolio. Mm-hmm. And it also became, oh, why do you want, why do you want to do a venture capital fund? Oh, I don't really want to manage any, anyone else's money. I just want to mm-hmm. invest in private companies. Yeah. Okay. Why don't I just do that right now? Um, so if I if I was an angel and you guys were reading the Series B, is it possible that I can get in, or is that only exclusively like venture capital guys? Yeah. At this at this stage, it would just be venture capital. So um, we only allow for Series A institutional investors. So those with uh, a certain net worth and at least uh, in the minimum buy-in was fifty thousand. But if you go earlier at the stage, seed stage, so the evolution for financing is that you start off with friends and family, um, and then you get an angel round, which is okay, maybe people you don't know, which is, and then you have a seed round, which is a blend of maybe rich people or institutional firms, and then Series A, which is really just venture capitalists, and then B, C, and onwards. And when you get C or D, those are the big boys, those are like uh, SoftBank, and those really big uh, Silicon Valley funds. There's very few Series B funds in Canada, even. I think Omer's is the only one. Yeah, I think Omer's, and I think Georgian might do a few Series B as well. Yeah, and so they, they've actually just moved money to Canada because of all the activity there. And so, you know, you can, there's a tons of Series A players, and, and, and uh, you know, I don't, the success of them is, is again, I think that there's, so, there's some people who really know what they're doing. There's a lot of people who don't, but they have help. they convince people to give them money, and, and you know, uh, it makes results. Um, but yeah, so if you did want to, the the angel stages, and there's a lot of angel syndicates, so the angels will pull their money together, so then they can um, then 
allocate that towards funds because you obviously don't want to put all your eggs in one basket type of thing. So if you syndicate with 50 others and then you can sprinkle that into various mm-hmm. angels startups. Yeah, I've been looking at the syndicates too. I think like things on like AngelList, for example, I can't just because I'm not an accredited yeah, investor. So. Yeah. Uh, not enough capital for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you get early enough, you know, keep hanging around incubators. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. That's probably yeah. it. Just talk, just nudge people and say, hey, you yeah. need money. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so then, in terms of your role itself, like if you were to describe your day today, like we're recording at the end of the day, so kind of walk me through your schedule today. Uh, this is a Tuesday. So, what did you do uh, as of the morning? Like, mm-hmm. what time does your meeting start? Like, what do you do when you get in? Yeah, so I'll get in obviously before nine. It's just so important to get in before the madness hits to plan your day. I think that I really focus on on planning the the priorities of my day. This week has been interesting because I have a board meeting tomorrow, so I really had to tie up loose ends with the board meeting. And and again, for those who aren't familiar with boards with startups, but again, it's just a, as the head of finance, there's a lot of requests for information, so it's compiling the information, presenting it to people, and. Obviously, individuals aren't, uh, spreadsheets aren't the best way to tell a story, so you have to really try and visualize it or at least capture it in a more captivating way. And so today, that was a large part of it. I also manage a team of four. And so what I've been doing today, so with one of my direct reports, it's uh, we're trying to define what success means in that role. So that was our office manager. And... What I was having trouble, because we're trying to uh, transition from, we'll call, our culture describes a type family to a sports-based culture, or as like a team-based culture, like a sports team. Because with families, like, yes, you're close, but, you know, it's, it, with the sports team, is that holding, holding each other accountable for performance. And so if you really want to win in this space, it's a dogfight. And so the best way to do it is to make sure that, like, we facilitate and encourage high performance. And so that's been a really big theme for us coming out of our management offsite. And so what I'm trying to do with all my direct reports is, okay, like we just totally whiteboard, what does success mean being a general accountant, a head of, a head of uh, people, um, an office manager, a recruiter, and whiteboard it and say, okay, what, so helping them in their own words describe it. And we work together on, okay, these are the main things that have to be successful in your role. How do we categorize it? And then from there, how do we measure it? And so the goal is to really come out with this document that says, this is me, Jane Doe. This is what success means in my role. This is how we measure it. And then we sign off on that and then we track that and that's part of performance. We measure quarterly, but we track weekly. And so that's the goal. So again, is it the right thing? I don't know yet, but that's one thing. So a big chunk I had to do today. Another one was working with our head of sales and the sales forecast. So, you know, in startup land, you have very aggressive growth targets. So it's how do you measure it? And and for me, it's okay. We can take the vision, and but we really need to translate it to what does that mean for cash flow? What does that mean for hiring? What does it mean for any other resource allocation? How much money can we give to marketing? And so from there, it's just okay. Like, does this is this actually an achievable target? working with their head of sales and really then from there it's on me to make sure okay working with each team lead to say okay like if we submit our 2019 budget to the board is this most appropriate because once you submit it you know you're, you're kind of getting judged based on that right your budget to actual so uh, that that's been a big project for me like any head of finance uh, you know Q4 that's a big theme of it 
And then the next thing I did was really, it's, it's, we're, we're trying to launch our KPIs, our key performance indicators. And it's a concept that's simple, but goddamn difficult to implement because you, we, this is our third run through of it because KPIs are things that move the needle for the company. And so you, it's easy to find data to track, but is it the right data to track? And will it rally people around that goal? And so that's been the difficulty and it's so easy just to get caught in the details and think, oh, well, if we have these 10, that's what it works out to be. So that, that's been the challenge for me right now. So we're I'm sort of working with each sort of team lead on that. So that was my day today. So nice. some projects, some meetings, and, uh, and yeah. Yeah, it doesn't sound like just staring at Excel screens all day. No, yeah. it's interesting. Very few of my day actually is accounting. And, you know, other than at month end, when I'm consolidating and, and sort of reviewing some of the transactions, but it's like 15% of my day would be traditional accounting. Yeah, a lot of it is just forecasting and more operational stuff. So it's funny how, like, when you're an auditor, you think that's what accounting or that's what finance is, but it's, 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 that's a scratching surface. And it's funny, like, I'm, I'm really, like, like when our auditor comes, I'm like to you know, my general account, I'm like you're the one building schedules and dealing with it. I don't want to deal with it. And so I remember, and you remember this when you're an auditor, like you're like, why do I never see the CFO? It's because they're like, I can't be bothered with this stuff. It's like in the past, it's audit, it's tying stuff up. You're, you're so far in the future and, and focusing on future stuff. So it, it kind of solves that and the question I had when I was 22, 23. Yeah. Would you say um, your experience right now though, it's more atypical of a startup? VP of finance or is it more in line with what your other peers I think that there's rocks that are in line with it I think this like any startup role is up to you to craft that role so I think that I've taken on obviously overseeing the people side of things probably because of my coaching past but you know there are some people who want to carve their own specialty Uh, maybe I'm just the forecaster or they happen to just be in accounting and they're not as strategic so I I think that there are sort of various degrees of consistency and, and one of the main consistencies is that people just throw stuff at you and you're not going to know a lot. Like we have a, a, a Slack group for uh, tech leaders in Toronto, tech finance leaders in Toronto. And it's all just us helping each other. Cause the reason we made it is because a lot of people don't like you're thrown like, okay, so we have to hire two employees in the state of Pennsylvania. Okay. And this is not well, me, but this is someone well, who actually had that. And yeah. it was the group like, you know, how do we do it? Like, okay, well, are you, um, have you followed a Pennsylvania this form? It's just these things where like, there's no, it's not repetitive. These are like one-off things or, you know, um, there, anything under the roof uh, is absolutely like, there's a lot of random things that'll come across that you're sort of supposed to be. So like right now we're trying to renegotiate our lease and we run into some complications. One of them being that people have only tracked the rental market in the past five years it has gone up astronomically. So now I'm trying to negotiate with the landlord because they want to raise rates like upwards of 25%, which wow. is insane. And so I get that news today. So it's like, okay, great. Um, that sucks. But then another random high is that we found the results that we were a recipient of a million dollar grant. <laughs> and so there's some roller coasters that you can ride uh, in startup land. It's certainly never just an even keel throughout the day. And so, uh, certainly 
Keeping things in perspective and stress management are two important characteristics you need, especially <laughs> yeah. as head of finance, because you see all the numbers. Yeah, you you kind of see all the dirt and the good stuff too. I guess like no one will know, but you'll know. Oh, we're gonna go down under, or we're gonna we're gonna be fine. <laughs> well, yeah. If the finance person leaves at a startup, then obviously really raise your ears and eyes. But um, <laughs> things are well here though. Hashtag paid. So no, good to hear. And so then, you know, when you were near the end of the coaching journey, you you were talking about how you realize that now there's more an interest. It's not a passion. I'm sick of it. I yeah. want to do something different. What do you What do you feel at Hashtag Pay like doing what you do? Like, have you ever yeah, asked so yourself similar questions? I think what I've tried to do with Hashtag Pay is not quick to uh, put a label on myself. So when I was at PDC, I'm an auditor or I'm a, you know, I want to be an audit partner. That's the next thing up. And then it was coaching. I'm a coach and this is the thing. I'm going to do this coaching, right? For me, it's... I, since day one, it's been, let's just be perceptive with what we do. Don't plan for something, but just like, okay, this seems interesting. Oh, that's not interesting. And then really try and that, let that foundation of awareness build the next step. And I could say that, yes, for the foreseeable future, certainly enjoying what I'm doing. Well, those are stressful days, of course, but is there any job that isn't? And, you know, if it's stressful, then it's probably a challenging role, which is something I enjoy doing. And then really, if it once, like, just trying to plan yeah more in the one to three year range versus that like 10 to 15 year range because things change so much in that scope especially in this career landscape and so it's yeah like where what are the other cool shit that i want to do at pdc or at hashtag paid and be responsible for and so that's where i'm seeing the lens so the thing like we're introducing kpis i was like i really want to try that out and be responsible for that and so we'll see what that leads to yeah no sounds great um, kind of just now in the final parts of the interview, um, the questions kind of that I ask all guests is, um, so the first question is, if your 20-year-old self, so 20-year-old Jordan, in you know, probably third year, Laurie, yeah. uh, was to look at you right now doing what you do, what do you think the emotional reaction would be? I mean, without context in the middle, he would be really happy. He'd be holy crap. Like, that's sort of, like, what I probably wanted to do. Uh, you know, always just sort of being being in a leadership capacity with the finance blend is something that were the, certainly the things I wanted and I thought why I would get at PwC. And so, yeah, certainly uh, happy with it. Yeah. And then what kind of advice uh, do you wish you had, uh, you could have given yourself uh, when you were 20? Yeah, it's a good question. It's really just like, don't try to rush growing up. Just let it happen. I think that it's, you know, you want to be in a position to like, you know, have a leadership role and make change and make impact. And, you know, I guess uh, advance in your career. And, and certainly when I was 20, I was hungry for and maybe impatient. And, and, you know, I think overanalyzing small sample sizes. So, you know, just ride the waves of your career and just take the longer, broader approach. And, and from there is say, like, am I generally enjoying what I'm doing? So great piece of feedback uh, in terms of just simplifying. And this is what Bill McLean gave me. He says, there's two questions I ask and it's something that I ask myself too is, am I learning and am I contributing? So it doesn't matter what how, what role that define definition is because you know you don't want to define yourself as oh I'm a finance person. It's just am I learning and am I contributing? And it's something too that I even heard from another um, 
So the CFO of Top Hat, Ralph Weakers, is uh, Ralph Readers is a brilliant man. He's an engineer. He has no CA background, but he's the CFO of one of the most successful Toronto startups at the moment. And he just said, I became a head of finance because I was just solving problems. And then that problem eventually led to being that CFO. But he's like, I'm not a CFO. I don't label myself that. I'm just a problem solver. And so it's just take, making sure you don't have that just roll lens, right? Just go more deeper and more visceral of, okay, like what specifically am I doing? And so um, that gut check of learning contributing has definitely served me well. Is it like the be all end all piece of advice? Maybe not, but it's something that I would probably tell my 20 year old self. Yeah, no, excellent. And now I got to have the CFO talk it on the podcast and I got to interview him. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, th- thanks a lot for your time, Jordan. This was a, a lot of fun. And yeah. yeah, I hope you enjoyed it as well. Yeah, for sure. Thanks yeah. a lot for having me on. Yeah, and um, for some of the you know listeners who want to be, you know, getting paid as influencers, how how can they get in contact with like hashtag paid? Go to www.hashtagpaid. So h a s h t a g hashtagpaid.com. Sign up as an influencer, and you'll sign your profile up. And if you are a great influencer, you'll likely get contacted by us to do a deal with a large brand. Excellent. All right. Great. Thanks for your time. Yeah, for sure. Take care. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way. And included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.